This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Um, okay, so today our speaker is Lee Goodmark. Um, she's an associate professor um, and director of clinical education and co-director of the Center of Applied Feminism um, at the University of Baltimore School of Law. Um, from 2000 to 2003, she was the director of the Children and Domestic Violence Project at the American Bar Association Center on Children and the Law. And before going into teaching, Professor Goodmark represented women subjected to abuse and children um, and children in the District of Columbia in custody, in custody, visitation, child support, restraining order, and other civil matters. So in other words, she's is a practicing lawyer and has actual practical experience with the, her topic, um, as well as a kind of theoretical relationship to it. So she's the author of a book which we have for sale outside, A Troubled Marriage, Domestic Violence, and the Legal System, um, which explores how the legal system's response to domestic violence developed, as well as why that response is flawed and what we should do to change it, and I think that's some of what she's going to talk about today, and I hope you'll join me in welcoming her. Uh, thank you, Lisa, and thank you so much to the Gender and Women's Studies Program for inviting me to be here today. Um, I wouldn't be here today if I were you, so I'm hugely impressed that you're here. Um, on the way over, I asked if we could just move this whole thing outside and just kind of have a conversation. Um, so thank you so much for coming. Um, you know, in less than two weeks, we're going to have the opportunity to choose yet another president. Um, and this election, you know, more than many in recent history, has had has raised some really significant issues for women, um, and particularly, you know, in the, in the debate before last, uh, women's issues were really highlighted. And so, what I wanted to do today is just to talk to you a little bit about some of those legal issues for women that are, are coming up in the election and some things that we should be thinking about in connection with the next election, uh, both in terms of the structure of the legal system that we deal with and in terms of the substantive issues. And then to really focus on the Violence Against Women Act as a, an example of, I think, the problematic politics around women's issues um, and, and the failure to get any kind of nuanced, thoughtful examination of women's policy issues as opposed to just sound bites. So we'll talk about that as well. Um, so on the structural side, in terms of the federal court system, the biggest issue, I think, for most lawyers who are looking at the election is Justice Ginsburg is going to retire. Um, Justice Ginsburg has been unwell for some time. It's fairly well known that she is likely to retire, I think, fairly soon into the next president's term. And so one of the things that's going to confront the next president fairly quickly is who will the next Supreme Court justice be? You know, it's worth remembering that it was actually Ronald Reagan who appointed the first woman to the Supreme Court when he appointed Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, president Obama has upped him somewhat by appointing two women to the Supreme Court, Justices Kagan and Sotomayor. Um, and, and it's worth thinking about kind of whether just appointing a woman makes a tremendous amount of difference. I mean, you could have Hillary Clinton or you could have Sarah Palin as president. They would be very different kinds of presidents, right, though they share a gender. And so while this will be important in terms of thinking about who that next justice might be and whether that justice will be a woman, it's always important, I think, to kind of asterisk for ourselves this idea that any woman right, is a good woman in a position when you care about women's issues. I think that's just not so, and I think we've seen that really over the last several years with the rise of women in politics, with the number of women in politics. I, I should say, you know, from the outset too, and I meant to say this before I even got started, I have a perspective on all of this. It may be the same as your perspective and it may be different. Um, I approach these issues differently than maybe some of you do. But it's important that we acknowledge that they are issues, that there are two sides to these issues, and think about where we might come out on them and how we want to vote as a result. So, we have the Supreme Court issue. We're going to need to replace Justice Ginsburg. But in addition, the composition of the federal courts could change drastically over the next, of the next president's term. There are more than 75 vacancies in the federal court system right now, which is actually a, a fairly sizable number. Republicans have largely refused to move on nominations that the president has made. That's become a more common tactic in recent years, but we've seen it taken really to a degree that I think no one ever expected 
over this last term, over President Obama's term. Um, women currently make up about a third of the federal courts of appeals judges and about 30% of federal district court judges. So how many of you are familiar with the structure of the federal court system? Okay, so for those of you who aren't the first level, the trial court level, that's the district court level. About 30% of those judges are women. The next level of appeal is the federal appeals court level. About a third of those judges are women and then up to the Supreme Court where currently a third of those judges or justices are women and we'll see what happens with that. So of President Obama's 200 judicial nominees so far, many of which are again still being held up, 82 of those nominees have been women. Um, and really more importantly, I think 31 of those nominees have been women of color. And that's particularly important because of the women on the federal bench, women of color are vastly underrepresented. So when you look at what our world looks like, and we think we'd like our judges to look like what our country looks like, uh, the big conspicuous absence would be women of color. And so Obama's attempts, to tr President Obama's attempts to try to rectify that situation are, I think, something that are noteworthy in that event. Um, just in September of 2012, the Republicans blocked votes on 17 nominees. So you can surmise from that that should there be a second term for President Obama and should the House and Senate stay the way that they are largely, we will continue to see nominees get blocked. And so all of those nominees who would even out the composition of the federal judiciary might not move forward. Should, president Romney, or should Governor Romney be elected president? Um, I know for some of us that's scary. Um, <laughs> should Governor Romney be elected president and the composition of the House and Senate stay the way they are? It's possible that his nominees would move forward, but it's also possible that those nominees would look very different. I think somewhat probable that those nominees would look very different. And you know, the reason that I think that is because of what we've learned recently about how it is that Governor Romney chooses women uh, for positions of power in his government. So, uh, you know, at the risk of taking on a, a, I don't like to use the term beating a dead horse as an anti-violence person, but you understand what I mean. Uh, you know, those binders full of women are pretty telling. And so, you know, what people don't know about that is that, in fact, it wasn't just that Governor Romney got elected and said, bring me a binder full of women, right? That what actually happened was those, those collections of women's resumes were done before the election by a group called the Massachusetts Government Appointments Project, which was a coalition of nonpartisan women's groups. And when Romney won, the women who were not in the binders brought him those resumes and said, you know, here's a collection of really qualified women from whom you could choose. Um, and a study by the University of Massachusetts and the Center for Women in Politics and Public Policy shows that the percentage of women in senior positions during Governor Romney's tenure as governor of Massachusetts actually declined. So it went from 30% when Governor Romney took office to 27% by the time he left and up to more than 33% when the next governor took over. So that tells us something about the likelihood that Governor Romney's nominees for the federal bench would look like President Obama's nominees for the federal bench. It's worth noting. The reason that any of this matters in terms of women's issues is that federal judges hear challenges to and defenses of laws that are essential to women, um, some of which we're going to talk about, right? Laws about reproductive rights, laws about employment discrimination, uh, the Family and Medical Leave Act, right? Uh, different kinds of laws that are really important to women in the workplace, women in home, women in their families. And so having federal judges who are open to, interested in women's issues is particularly important. And that's why that's an important legal issue for, the, for this election. So beyond just that substantive legal issue, then there are, there are, I'm sorry, beyond the composition of the federal bench, there are these substantive legal issues to talk about as well. And I won't talk about them in huge amounts of detail um, until I get to the Violence Against Women Act, which I will then talk about really for all day, because that's what I talk about. Um, but in terms of the substantive legal issues, you know, first and foremost, I think you have to start with the Affordable Care Act, right, and health care reform. Um, in 2010, approximately 19 million women in this country lacked health insurance. By 2014, nearly all of them will be covered under the Affordable Care Act should the act still be a part of our law, right? So that's going to be a huge issue for women. 
Um, and, and the things that the Affordable Care Act covers are particularly important to women. Things like preventative health services, contraceptive coverage, coverage of pre-existing conditions like breast cancer or other forms of cancer, uh, the coverage of children. Uh, how many of you still have insurance because of the Affordable Care Act that you wouldn't have had before? Yeah, right, that's a big deal for your parents. As the mother of an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old, the idea that I can continue to provide insurance for my children at a point in their lives when they might not have it is really important. Um, as a woman's issue, I think it's very important. Um, the provision of tax relief for those who can't otherwise afford insurance, many of whom will be low-income working mothers. Those are all crucially important issues for women. House Republicans have now voted 33 times to repeal the Affordable Care Act. They have yet to do so, but they have done it. They have voted on it 33 times. And uh, an organization has figured out that the cost of having done that has been $50 million. Right? So what they figured out was the time that it's spent on the floor trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act has approximated two weeks. And two weeks of running the House costs about $24 million a week. It's about $48 million. So right now, that's where your tax dollars are going, um, towards the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. In terms of reproductive rights, I mean, obviously, the, this whole conversation that's being had about the war on women centers to a great extent on reproductive rights. But it, it's really important to understand kind of what reproductive rights there really are to argue about in this country. So what's the single biggest thing that we argue about? Abortion, right? Let's be clear about the right to abortion in this country. Certainly it exists. It exists as a function of Roe versus Wade and the cases that come after it. But Abortion isn't a reality for most women in the United States. 99% of the counties in the United States have no abortion clinic. So we're arguing about this as though it was the most pressing issue facing any of us, when in fact it's not a reality for most of us. Um, and particularly for if you just spin it out, right? So if your county doesn't have a clinic and you're a woman who has money, what do you do? You drive to the next county, you fly to the next state, right? You have the ability to deal with this. So the people who are disproportionately impacted by this are low-income women, women who aren't going to have other options. The 15-year-old who can't tell her parents that she needs an abortion, but there's nowhere for her to go, right? Kids who can't go and do what they need to do. So just to be clear about what actually exists in the country, Notwithstanding the fact that abortion is not particularly available in the United States, there are a number of states that have passed legislation that prevents women from buying insurance that covers abortion services. So states are making the decision for you rather than allowing you to make the decision for yourself that you should be able to buy insurance coverage for yourself, not mandating that anyone else have it, just telling you that you can't have it, you can't buy that insurance. That's an electoral issue because the people who you elect, the people who you put into office are the people who are making those laws. So if that is a problem for you, if you'd like to be able to select your insurance and select the kinds of health care services that it contains, you need to be attentive to the stance that the person who you're voting for has taken on these issues. Uh, the issue of what's called partial birth abortion, right, is going to, again, I think, be a hot legal issue. The Supreme Court has been back and forth on it. I think another case will go. Um, this is going to continue to get debated. States will continue to pass laws. Organizations will continue to sue them. And those cases will end up in the federal courts. And we've already talked about the importance of those federal courts. Uh, this, the issue that's come up you know, twice in this election about the legitimacy of rape and rape and abortion, I think, is a particularly pernicious issue. So we know that you know, the first statement that came out was, well, you can't get pregnant when you're not legitimately raped, right? Only legitimate rape gets you pregnant. And we should allow abortion in the cases of legitimate rape, but not necessarily in other kinds of cases. Um, I have to tell you, as someone who's done domestic violence work for 18 years, I have yet to figure out how one legitimizes any kind of rape. Um, but to the extent that one can, it would be awfully hard to figure out, you know, what is legitimate and what is not. Um, certainly, I would not want to be the person in the position of having to do that. But on top of that, then, we get a second statement from another uh, Senate, uh, Senate candidate saying that the, the pregnancy that results from rape is God's will. And so, therefore, there should be no abortion, even in cases of rape. Even, I think, the most conservative, not, well, obviously not the most conservative, most conservative candidates are willing to make an exception for abortion in the cases of rape, incest, and the health of the mother. 
Um, that this conversation is happening should be troubling to those of you who disagree with that, right? You need to vote. You need to make your voices heard. If you believe in that, you need to vote because you need to support candidates who are being you know, fairly pilloried for making those kinds of statements. I have a perspective on this. It may not be your perspective. Either way, part of being part of this electoral system, part of getting policy made that you agree with is being sure to vote um, for or against the people who make those kinds of statements. Other reproductive health care issues are going to include things like contraceptive coverage, which has been one of the big flashpoints in the Affordable Care Act, this idea that uh, contraception should be covered as a preventative health service. Um, it's been amusing to me for years that we get coverage for Viagra but not for contraception. Um, that seems problematic, um, but you know, be that as it may, that again is going to be an electoral issue. And for things like a day after pills, so the Center for Reproductive Rights had to sue the Federal Drug Administration to get approval for Plan B, right? For them to uh, to get Plan B out into pharmacies into people's hands. All of these are issues that you should think about. And then there are funding issues because one of the biggest powers that the federal government has is the power to fund, right? And when you think about the vast amounts of money that the federal government gives out to organizations all over this country and all over this world, then you can start to think about the real impact that the federal government can have on women's lives. So thinking about things like family planning abroad, you know, we give aid in lots of countries to think about family planning kinds of issues. Um, the whole controversy here around Planned Parenthood and whether Planned Parenthood should be funded or not, that's a pretty stark difference. You know, President Obama would continue to fund Planned Parenthood, Governor Romney would not. That's a choice for you to make. That's a, a, an issue for you to consider in terms of its impact on women. Um, so all of those reproductive kinds of rights issues are going to be front and center, I think, in, the next, in this election and in, in the period of time that follows it. And the, the way that they get handled will vary significantly depending upon who comes into office. Pay equity. In 2011, women on average still earned 77 cents for each dollar that men earned. Um, for African American women, it was 69 cents. So we still have not achieved pay equity in the United States. Under the first President Obama, under President Obama's first term, um, one of the, the pieces of legislation that got signed, in fact, the first piece of legislation that President Obama signed was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009. So the Ledbetter case said that you only had a certain amount of time to sue for a, a Fair Pay Act violation after you got that paycheck. I'm vastly oversimplifying, but basically that's what it said. So you had this amount of time to sue. And if you, wanted, if you found out about it only here, that was too bad, because this was your amount of time in which to sue. What the Ledbetter Fair Pay Act did was to extend the statute of limitations, the time that you had to file that lawsuit um, in order to keep women from being in the situation Lily Ledbetter was in. And what happened to Lily Ledbetter was that she didn't find out for years and years and years that men doing the same job as her were being paid vastly more than she was being paid. She found out when somebody tipped her off, and when she found out, she sued, but it was too late. And she could not recover damages for that uh, under the Fair Pay Act because she hadn't filed within the statute of limitations. So people think that the Ledbetter Act guaranteed equal pay for women. It did not. There's really no act that can guarantee equal pay for women because employers will still do things to ensure that equal pay doesn't happen. But what the federal law can do is give you a right of action to sue for that fair pay violation. And that's Ledbetter extends the statute of limitations, but it doesn't do a lot of other things. And for that reason, there's another piece of legislation that's been introduced twice uh, and defeated twice in Congress, most recently in 2012, called the Paycheck Fairness Act. What the Paycheck Fairness Act would do would be to expand the Equal Pay Act, which is the mechanism for suing when you think you've been, you're, uh, when you're being paid less than a counterpart of a different gender. Um, and it would allow you to, to secure both compensatory, that means paying you back for what you've lost, and punitive damages. So compensatory damages are, you lost this much as a result of an equal pay, we're going to give you that much back. But punitive damages are, employer, what you did was wrong, we're going to punish you for it, those damages are the punishment 
for engaging in that behavior. So important to have not just the bit of pay that you get back, but to give some sanction against the employer that makes them think twice the next time they think about paying someone unequally. So the, the, uh, the Paycheck Fairness Act would allow for both compensatory and punitive damages. It would allow for class action lawsuits. One of the most difficult things that women face in trying to bring employment discrimination claims is that they're costly. Um, and when you're bringing them one after the other after the other, they don't have as much of an impact as they can have if an entire class of women, all of whom are being underpaid, can bring that lawsuit together. So the, the Paycheck Fairness Act would allow for class action lawsuits under the Equal Pay Act so that you have that power that comes with numbers, right, that gives you leverage in order to deal with a huge conglomerate like, for example, a Walmart when you're suing them and trying to get some negotiation posture, right? It's one thing if I go to Walmart and say, well, you didn't pay me equally and I would like to be paid, and they go, yeah, uh-huh. And it's something very different when 10,000 of us go to Walmart and say, you didn't pay any of us fairly, and you're going to pay for it. Then we have some leverage, right? That's the importance of a class action lawsuit. Another thing that the Paycheck Fairness Act would do would be to prohibit retaliation for sharing salary information. So right now, if I talk to you about my salary and I say, hey, you know, they're paying me 10 bucks an hour, what are they paying you? The employer can actually fire me for trying to share that information without any legal sanction against the employer for doing that. What the Paycheck Fairness Act would say is, if you're trying to figure out what people's salaries are in order to figure out whether you're being paid fairly, the employer can't fire you for seeking that information. And then, not to get hyper-technical, so I'm just going to kind of give you the generality. The other thing that the Paycheck Fairness Act does is to close a loophole that employers are currently able to use that justifies giving unequal pay for comparable work. So there's a very big loophole right now in the law where an employer can say, well, but there's this other reason that we're giving unequal pay, and so as long as we have some other reason, we don't have to justify the inequity in the pay. And the Paycheck Fairness Act would close that loophole and say, no, you've got to prove that it's not as a result of gender, that you're giving unequal pay, or else you can't use those kinds of um, exceptions to the rule. So very clear positions on the fa Paycheck Fairness Act. President Obama has said that he supports the Paycheck Fairness Act, while Governor Romney has said that he supports pay equity for women, he has not said and will not say, despite being asked repeatedly, whether he would sign the Paycheck Fairness Act. I think that's pretty telling. If you're going to support something, you generally say so. Um, and so you know where they stand on that issue as you're voting. That's something for you to think about. There are another, a number of other issues that we could talk about in this context, right? We could talk about immigration, um, which Michelle could do way better than me. Um, but we could talk about immigration, and we could talk about the ways that immigration policy hurts women, separates women from their children, forces women to make decisions about staying in the United States with their citizen children, um, or trying to leave and take citizen children out of the United States. We could talk about the family reunification policies in immigration law that don't always work to keep families together in the way that we'd like them to. We could talk about immigration policies that enable men to come to the United States and strand their wives elsewhere. Um, so there's this really interesting issue that's come up now of stranded wives, and it's largely happening in India, um, where men are marrying their, their brides in India and either leaving them in India or bringing them here to work and then abandoning them altogether. And these women have no family ties, no cultural ties, no legal status, and they're stuck. And they don't have any recourse, right? And immigration policy contributes to that in ways that are way too complicated for me to get into. Um, but it does, so just trust me on that. Um, in addition, you know, things like the DREAM Acts that are coming up in several states, which would allow in-state tuition for undocumented kids, those are women's issues. You know, I, I don't, how many of you have kids? Right? You want your kids to go to college, right? That's a women's issue. The ability for your child to go to college at in-state tuition rates, which in Maryland, you know, the difference is about a third. So it's the difference between being able to afford college and not for that kid to be able to have a better life. Those are women's issues too. Um, and so immigration issues are things that we should be thinking about. And then there's the economy, which is kind of the big monster issue that looms over all of this and plays out in more ways, really, than, than we can think of. But think about the impact of the economy on employment and on employment for women and the kinds of jobs that are available for women. Um, think about 
how the economy affects domestic violence. And I'll talk about that in a little bit, but you know, one of the really interesting pieces of social science data that I've picked up in the last couple of years is the, that social studies, social science research supports the idea that when men are unemployed, they are more likely to commit acts of domestic violence. So, in a recession like the one we've got, we see rates of domestic violence going up. It's not terribly surprising. Now, it's more nuanced than that most things are. Um, but it suggests that if we could do something about the economy, we might be able to do something about domestic violence as well. And when the economy is struggling, we can't do lots of other things that we might otherwise want to do. We can't put money into the kinds of social programs that lots of women rely upon. We can't put money into uh, infrastructure building, uh, schools that we care about, roads that we care about, services for kids that we care about. Um, so all of that, the economy kind of looms large over all of those things. So lots of issues for you to think about. Um, but the issue that I want to turn to now is domestic violence. Because I think that what's going on with the Violence Against Women Act acts in, in some ways as a microcosm of all of the things that we're talking about. And since it's the one thing that I actually know a lot about, um, I thought we'd spend most of our time there. So just to give you a backdrop before we get to the Violence Against Women Act, in the United States prior to the late 1970s, if your husband, and it was only husbands we were talking about that time, and wives, if your husband was abusing you, you had very little recourse. There wasn't a whole lot that you could do. If you called the police, they were likely to come and tell your husband to take a walk around the block, have him cool down, but not to make an arrest. Arrest was incredibly rare. Um, and in fact, it's in the police training manuals from the 1970s that what you're supposed to do is tell the guy to take a walk around the block, but don't make an arrest because it's really a private matter between the parties. If, for some reason, an arrest got made, prosecution was even less likely to happen. Um, and prosecutors would tell you that the reason for that was that women weren't interested in prosecuting. They weren't interested in seeing their husbands go to jail. Well, not surprisingly, at a time when not as many women were working out of the home, were relying upon their husbands for economic support, relied upon them for status in the community. I mean, I, I always, my mom always hates it when I say this, but you know, my mom was one of the first divorcees in our neighborhood uh, in 1973. She was totally ostracized. People who had been her friends would no longer talk to her. She was socially unacceptable. So if you are a wife in the 1970s and you're being abused, but you know that what that means is that you'll no longer have the support of your extended community, you're thinking twice about prosecution. Right? You're thinking twice about taking that step. And even if prosecution happens, as unlikely as it is, conviction is even less likely. And if there's a conviction, there's not jail time. So that's the system that you're looking at in the 1970s. right? The first changes to the legal system are primarily in the civil system, actually, and not in the criminal system. And it's through the creation of a remedy called a civil protection order. The civil protection order was allowed women to go into court and say to a judge, I am being abused. I need for my husband, and again, at that time, we're still talking only about husbands and wives. I need for my husband to stay away from me. I need him to not assault, threaten, harass me, continue to this behavior and I need him to stay out of the house. The idea behind the civil protection order was that it was a remedy that women could control for themselves, that they could go in and ask courts for specifically what they needed to be able to keep themselves safe. And again, at this time, we're only talking about women. You know, now when we talk about domestic violence, I try to always talk about people subjected to abuse because we know that violence occurs um, in lots of different kinds of relationships, both straight and gay relationships, and we know that even within straight relationships, men are sometimes abused. Now, the latest federal statistics tell us that 85% of the victims of domestic violence are still women. So it's not inappropriate to default to women, but it is important to acknowledge that we're talking about something that affects more than just women. That being said, though, at that time, no one conceived of men as victims of abuse. It was just wives and husbands, and this was something we gave a wife to be able to do. Over time, advocates saw that while the civil protection order was a great remedy in terms of the things that it could do for women, it wasn't expansive enough. So lots of different things got added to the civil protection order. Things like custody of children, because children became a major uh, point of disagreement, right? a major point of argument. 
um, and, and leverage, really, for the abusive partner to say, if you try to call the police, if you try to leave me, I will take your children away. So being able to get custody in a civil protection order was supposed to really blunt that risk. Um, to get possession of a home, <clears throat> to get use and possession, excuse me, of a jointly owned vehicle um, or other kinds of personal property that the woman would need. To get economic support. To keep the abusive partner away from someone's home, uh, school or workplace or other kinds of places. So the remedy expands vastly over time. It comes to encompass not just husbands and wives, but intimate partners, uh, people who are related by blood, by marriage, or by adoption. So you see all kinds of people using the remedy now. The second set of reforms were criminal justice system reforms. And <clears throat> some of them were substantive law in terms of the creation of a crime of domestic violence, but honestly, you really didn't need to create a crime of domestic violence because domestic violence was already illegal to the extent that it constituted an assault or other kinds of criminal behavior. We already had laws against domestic violence. The question was really, how do we get the criminal justice system to enforce those laws? And that happened <clears throat> after a very well-known case called Thurman versus City of Torrington, Connecticut. So in Thurman, what happened was that Tracy Thurman had been calling the cops in Torrington, Connecticut about her husband Charles repeatedly over about an 18-month to two-year period and saying, he's beating me, he's threatening me, he's threatening me, he's going to kill me, he beat me up again, and the police were really doing nothing about it. Um, Charles is finally arrested, he's convicted of breach of the peace, and he's told to stay away from his wife, but he doesn't, right? He keeps coming around, and she keeps calling the police to say he's violating the order, he's violating the order, but the police do nothing. They continue to do nothing until Charles shows up outside the house where Tracy is with a friend, gets her to come outside, stabs her repeatedly, and then when the police show up, kicks her in the head in front of the police, and they still don't arrest him. They don't arrest him until Tracy is lying on a stretcher, bleeding, and this is also after he has taken their young child and thrown the child on top of her while she's laying on the ground bleeding. Please don't make an arrest until she's lying on a stretcher and he's still yelling about what he's going to do to her and approaches the stretcher. Then they make an arrest. Tracy Thurman is left paralyzed, partially paralyzed as a result of that attack and she sues the city of Torrington, Connecticut and she wins a substantial recovery. And other jurisdictions all of a sudden say, well, we don't want to pay out money for this. What are we going to do? And what they do is to implement a policy called mandatory arrest. Mandatory arrest is exactly what it sounds like. What it is is that police are required to make an arrest whenever they have probable cause to believe that domestic violence has occurred. So they get to the scene, he's there, she's there, she's bleeding, and she says, don't arrest. That's not an option anymore. They are required to make an arrest whenever they have probable cause to believe that the crime of domestic violence has occurred. So we get lots more arrests. As a result of mandatory arrest, we get other bad things as well. I'll talk about those in a minute, but I just want to give you the landscape. Cases go to the prosecutors, and guess what? Prosecutors still aren't prosecuting. But the prosecutors say it's not our fault we're not prosecuting. It's the women's fault. They don't want to be witnesses in these cases. And that's not untrue. Lots of times women decide for various reasons that they don't want to be part of the prosecution. But the prosecutors say you can't fault us. We're doing our job, we don't have witnesses. Until someone says, well, do it differently. Do a domestic violence case the way that you would do a homicide case, where there is no complaining witness to testify. Collect evidence in such a way that you don't need the complaining witness there to testify. And this was known as victimless prosecution. The idea that you could put together a case that didn't require a victim to testify at all through photographs and police reports and statements made to police and hospital records and a variety of other evidence gathering techniques. So that's step one. <clears throat> but prosecutors then start prosecuting these cases and think, we really want the victim whenever we can have her there to testify. And so we don't like it when she says, I don't want to be the witness. I don't want to come forward and testify. And our goal is a victim safety and offender accountability. And to achieve our twin goals of victim safety and offender accountability, we need that witness there. We're going to do something called no-drop prosecution. What no-drop prosecution means is that when a case is brought, the prosecutors will not drop it regardless of what the complaining witness decides to do, the complaining witness being, of course, the person subjected to abuse. 
So she says, I don't want to testify. They say, we're a no-drop prosecution jurisdiction. That's too bad. We're going to have you testify. Now, in a soft no-drop prosecution, what that looks like is the, is the prosecutor's office saying, you know, please, we really need your help. We can give you these services. We can provide resources to you, but only if you're willing to assist with prosecution. In a hard no-drop prose prosecution jurisdiction, what that looks like is we will subpoena you to testify, whether you want to be there or not. If you fail to comply with that subpoena, we may uh, issue what's called a body attachment, which is essentially an arrest warrant, and we will bring you in on that arrest warrant to testify because our goals are more important than what it is that you want to do. And if we really think you're not going to show up, sometimes we'll put you in jail until the time of the trial so that we're sure that you're there. Okay? So those are the criminal justice policies that start to evolve. Now, parallel with all of this comes the Violence Against Women Act. I promised you we would get there. The Violence Against Women Act was first passed in 1994, and it had a very strange kind of coalition of bedfellows behind it. Right, so on the one hand, you had battered women's advocates who had been working for years to restore federal funding for domestic violence. The, before 1994, the last time that there was any federal funding for domestic violence was in the Carter administration. Um, and since I was a kid, that means you weren't born yet. Um, but that was all about uh, housing and services. None of that was about criminal justice reform. In the interim, the Attorney Just General's Task Force on Domestic Violence made a very public statement of saying, this is a criminal justice matter. It needs to get handled as a criminal justice matter. And that's what VAWA does. So VAWA puts together these battered women's advocates who've been trying forever to get funding back, along with law and order conservatives. We're saying, this is a criminal justice issue. Treat it like a criminal justice issue. We need to put money into police and prosecutors and courts to address this problem properly. And so <clears throat> VAWA really reflects the priorities of that coalition. Um, and now, the two largest grant programs in VAWA, the STOP uh, grant program and the Grants to Encourage Arrest programs, are putting $292 million into police and prosecutors and courts, with very little being put into things like civil legal assistance, so lawyers in civil cases, housing, economic assistance for women subjected to abuse. The clear priority of the Violence Against Women Act is the criminal justice response. And you see that in the way that it's funded. VAWA has been reauthorized twice since 1994, once in 2000 and once in 2005. And while the act has expanded over that time, the priorities haven't really changed. Now, what's interesting about VAWA is that it's always been passed with strong bipartisan support, right? This is one of those things where Democrats and Republicans can agree, we don't want people beating women, the Violence Against Women Act is a good thing. And there's never been an issue about it until this year, until this reauthorization. So it's important to focus on the fact that VAWA has done some really important things um, before I go and tell you why I don't like it. Um, VAWA's done some really important things. It's provided some money, though not much, for civil legal assistance, for transitional housing, for services for sexual assault victims. It focuses on marginalized populations, like rural victims and women with disabilities and the elderly. Um, it's funded supervised visitation centers so that safe visitation can happen in cases involving domestic violence. It's done some really important stuff. This reauthorization has been different, and it's been different because of three things. Gays, immigrants, and Indians. This reauthorization of VAWA included explicit non-discrimination language against lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. So even though programs were never supposed to discriminate against LGBT folks as they were providing services, it just added to that general federal language that says you can't discriminate on the basis of gender, race, blah, 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 right? It added sexual orientation. It added LGBT status to that list. So that's one problem. Second problem is that it expanded a program called the U visa program to larger numbers of immigrant, undocumented immigrant women who were victims of crime. And the third thing that it does is it expanded the jurisdiction. What, by jurisdiction, all I mean is the ability, right, the authority of tribal courts to prosecute crimes against Native American women 
that are committed by non-Indians. So generally, tribal courts have no authority to do anything about people who are not Indians. But under this authorization of the Violence Against Women Act, those tribal courts would have been able to uh, prosecute the abusers of Indian women under the Violence Against Women Act. The Senate has passed a version that includes all three of these provisions. The House absolutely refuses to include them in its version. Um, and many Senate Republicans did not support the Senate version of VAWA. In fact, it came out of the Senate Judiciary Committee on a straight party line vote. The final vote in the Senate was 68-4 and 31 against, with 15 Senate Republicans voting against the bill. VAWA has never had that many Republicans vote against it. Not ever. Not as long as it's been around. Some have asked whether Democrats purposely put in these provisions in order to embarrass Republicans, right? To see if we could shame them into not supporting the Violence Against Women Act to make it an election year issue. I don't think that these provisions were added as a poison pill for Republicans, and I can't really speculate as to why the Republicans have decided not to support it. I don't know why they do what they do. We are different species. Um, but as with each VAWA reauthorization, coalitions of advocates for women subjected to abuse from across the country came together to talk about the problems that they were seeing with the operation of the bill. And those three proposals really came not from Democrats trying to make a point, but from coalitions of battered women's advocates saying, these are the problems that we see, and this is the way that we think that we can address them. Um, so with the U visa, for example, the current, the so does anybody know what a U visa is? Okay. Let's do a little education on that. The U visa is a program <clears throat> that gives temporary legal status and work eligibility to undocumented victims of particular kinds of crimes, including rape, domestic violence, sexual assault, and trafficking. In order to qualify for a U visa, you have to assist law enforcement in the investigation and prosecution of the crime that you are alleging. Um, and law enforcement has to certify you've provided that assistance. And that's supposed to ensure that we don't have people just claiming that they've been victims of crime to get documentation, right, to get legal status in the United States. If law enforcement has to be part of it, then we have some independent check on that. The U visa is controversial in the same way that any provision that assists undocumented people is controversial, um, because it's a way of extending immigration status to undocumented people. Um, and it raises fears about dishonesty and about abuse of the system. Um, the law enforcement requirement, as I said, is meant to assuage those fears, but clearly it doesn't work for everyone. Not everyone is accepting that that's sufficient. So that's the U visa. With the U visa, there are 10,000 U visas authorized under the Violence Against Women Act. So 10,000 immigrant, undocumented immigrant victims of crime could apply for these visas. And it took the Department of Homeland Security seven years to issue the regulations to make this program work. No visas went out for the first seven years of the program. But since those regulations have been completed, all 10,000 have been used every year. So what people said was, well, then we need more. Because clearly we have more immigrant victims of crime who need our assistance. Let's expand that number to 15,000. Um, so expanding the program, it was just intended not to create more pathways for undocumented people, but just in acknowledgement of the fact that all of them were getting used. So it must be really meeting a need. Similarly, in the case of Indian women, there are numerous stories that detail the problems that Indian women face in having the violence against them addressed where tribal courts lack jurisdiction to deal with US, um, so tribal courts can't do it, right? Because these are not tribal people. And the US courts won't do it because it's federal reservation land, they're federal courts, and the federal courts won't hear those cases. So what that's meant is that those victims have no recourse. And again, just acknowledging that there was a problem and trying to solve that problem, not trying to create a huge federalism problem where you know, the federal government is usurping the powers of the states or giving tribal governments so much authority, but just trying to deal with this problem, there's a class of women who aren't able to get any help or any relief. Um, but these three provisions have really become a line in the sand in this whole debate. So we will give you, you know, this far and no further. We'll give you police and prosecutors and courts because we believe in police and prosecutors and courts. But we're not going to go any further than that. Don't ask us for protection for LGBT folks. Don't ask us to extend that tribal jurisdiction. Don't ask us to create immigration remedies for undocumented people. So that's what's going on with VAWA now. Now I have to tell you, 
I am ambivalent about the Violence Against Women Act. Um, the bill, as I've said, has done some really amazing things, truly important things. But what VAWA does more than anything is to put money into the criminal justice system. Um, VAWA paid for the, mandatory, the implementation of mandatory arrest laws. VAWA required, actually, the implementation of mandatory arrest laws so that you could get VAWA funding. VAWA paid for the expansion of no-drop prosecution. Um, so we went from having nothing to having this legal system, and particularly the criminal legal system, be the primary means for responding to domestic violence in this country. And that would be okay if we had any real evidence that the law enforcement response to domestic violence is stopping domestic violence. But we don't. We don't really have any reason to believe that law enforcement has been effective if by effective you mean domestic violence is less than it would otherwise be because of this infusion of funds into the criminal justice system. Since VAWA's inception, rates of domestic violence in the United States have certainly fallen. But so has the overall crime rate. And rates of domestic violence haven't fallen any more than the overall crime rate has fallen. One would think that after pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into the system, you would get more return than the general return that we're seeing overall. And even if we were, criminalization has had some really problematic consequences. One of the things that's happened since the inception of mandatory arrest laws is a steep rise in the rates of dual arrest and arrests of women. So the single group that's most li more likely to be arrested now than they were before is women. Um, oftentimes, when called to the scene, police look at both parties. They see a guy with defensive injuries, maybe scratches or redness, and they see a woman who's been beaten up, and they say, well, clearly you were both at fault. We're bringing you both in, right? That's not a fiction that I'm making up. I promise you that this is what's happening uh, in the United States. So rates of women have vastly increased. Criminalization also contributes to the mass incarceration of men of color, um, which is a bigger problem in this country, but certainly criminalizing domestic violence hasn't helped any. If you go into the courts in most cities, it is not middle-class white guys that you're going to see as your defendants in domestic violence cases. Middle-class white people have other ways to deal with their problems. They're not using the court system. But the mass criminalization of men of color is very much being added to by this criminalization of domestic violence. Um, but most importantly for me, and, and the stuff that I focus on, the stuff that I really write about, is that mandatory policies have taken power away from women to determine how to address the abuse in their lives. When a, a call to the police is made, a woman no longer has the ability to say, I don't want him arrested. And people say, well, that's a good thing, because she doesn't really know what she wants, and she's just saying that because he's controlling her. You know, maybe. Or maybe she's saying that because he's her only economic support, and she won't be able to keep a roof over her kids' heads if he's arrested. Maybe she's saying that because he said, I will kill you if you have me arrested, and she believes that that's true. Maybe she's saying that because her extended family or her community will ostracize her if she has him arrested, because that's not acceptable in that community. Maybe she's saying it because her immigration status is relying on her, and he's wor she's worried that if he, she calls the police, she won't be able to keep her status. Now, there are provisions in VAWA that deal with that. That doesn't mean she knows that. Um, maybe she's undocumented, and she's worried that if the police get called in, not only will he get arrested, but her status will become an issue. And that is happening all over this country through the Secure Communities Program. So there are lots of reasons why a woman might not want her partner arrested. But she doesn't get to make that choice anymore in a mandatory arrest regime. Similarly, in a no-drop policy regime, no-drop prosecution policy regime, she doesn't get to choose whether she wants him prosecuted or not. And there's some great social science research out there about why women choose prosecution and why they don't. But it can be called, uh, David Ford calls it a power resource. The threat of prosecution is something that a woman can choose to use when and as she wants to. And it can be a really powerful tool, but only if she controls it. If she doesn't have the ability to control it, it can't really work for her anymore. So no-drop prosecution, again, similarly, takes power out of the hands of women. That's my issue, my biggest issue with it, although I have all those other issues, too. Um, so my position on VAWA is a bit nuanced, and I think different than the people who are just saying, we have to pass it, we have to pass it, we have to pass it. I think that VAWA should be reauthorized, but I think that we should think about where the money that currently goes to the criminal justice system could be better used. Right? What could we be doing with that $292 million that we're not doing now? 
Um, how, could we use it in services for women subjected to abuse? Could we use it for transitional housing? Could we use it for job training for men who are abusive? If we really care about stopping domestic violence, we ought to be thinking about what the causes of that violence are and whether we can use money in ways that get rid of those causes rather than just reacting to it at the back end. Um, the problem with the rhetoric on both sides of this issue, both kind of the man-hating feminazi rhetoric and the war on women rhetoric, is that it isn't nuanced and it isn't thoughtful about the real problems that the Violence Against Women Act seeks to address. So when you reduce social and legal issues like these to slogans, it, you rarely get good policy. You, we could have a thoughtful discussion about the needs of people subjected to abuse, women and men alike if we could get past some of that noise. And unfortunately, you know, one, of, one thing that an election year does is prevent us from thinking about nuance and policy innovation because largely all we get is noise, right? All we get is sound bites and arguments. The current stalemate that we're at doesn't allow us to get at other things that VAWA could do. VAWA could deal with economic issues. Um, we could put money into job training instead of batterers and uh, intervention programs. We could give poor women actual material assistance um, from housing to emergency financial assistance to small business creation to microfinance, right? Things that can empower women to change their lives. <clears throat> Given the clear link between women, women's reproductive rights and their ability to leave free, live free from violence, and so what I didn't say and should have said is one of the more interesting social uh, science findings that's been made recently is around the idea of reproductive abuse that abusers use women's reproductive capability as a way to control them, as a way to abuse them. Um, so that goes, you know, runs the gamut from forcing pregnancy to ending pregnancy, right? Taking away someone's birth control, flushing their birth control, to attacking them while they're pregnant. All of those things provide a locus of control. Um, and VAWA could do something about that. Uh, Congress could help to alleviate abuse of women by funding reproductive health care, making sure that it's available to everyone, and by eliminating prohibitions on federal spending for abortion. Um, and then, you know, VAWA could look beyond state-run systems to say, if women don't want to use the criminal justice system or any state-run system for whatever reason, what could we do? Could we think about restorative justice programs, right? Could we think about victim-offender dialogue? Could we think about truth commissions? Are there other kinds of mechanisms that we can use that give women justice, validation for what they've been through, and voice, the ability to talk about what they've been through? Are there other kinds of programs that might do that, and could VAWA help us to explore those kinds of programs? It's not entirely clear to me what the impact of failing to authorize, reauthorize VAWA would be. You know, police, prosecutors, and courts would continue to exist, um, but their funding would be cut. <clears throat> I think more harmed would be the service providers that operate at the margins, uh, the civil legal service providers that don't exist but for the legal assistance to victims grant, which is what funds civil legal assistance programs, the supervised visitation center that relies on VAWA funds. So VAWA is a major election issue because the failure to reauthorize it could really have a catastrophic impact on people subjected to abuse. But VAWA is an election issue too because we need to have these hard discussions about what it should really fund. Um, but there's no easy solution to that political debate. In two weeks, I think we'll know what the fate of VAWA is going to be. No matter what happens in this election, I think at some point we will have some form of VAWA. But whether it's a more expansive act, that protects unpopular groups and thinks about different ways of addressing abuse, or it's more of a law and order version, is really going to depend on who prevails on November 6th. Thank you. I am happy to take questions, but I know I went long and I apologize for that. Yeah, so thank you so much. So I, there's so many things I could say. I agree with you, I agree with you, I agree with you. Um, um, well, but tell me where you disagree. That's the point. So, well, for, for, uh, most importantly, I think I want to emphasize my concern about where the money is being spent. I think you're right that it needs to be spent in a way that doesn't just funnel it all into the criminal justice response. But one thing I want to ask about is that your 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 description of mandatory prosecution and no drop policy strikes me as inconsistent with my experience when I was when I got a grant under VAWA and I started a new domestic violence prosecution unit and implemented a mandatory prosecution policy. Yeah, prosecutors hate Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I love, I love your work. I'm just, I, 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 and the, the thing I love about it is that you're attempting to find some sort of nuance in the middle ground, and I think you, know, you, you need in the middle somewhere. But the, 
my experience was um, when I implemented a no-drop policy was that if a victim came to me and said, I want the charges dropped, my first response would be to talk and find out what was going on and try to gather as much information about safety and you know, what was the reason behind this. Um, eight times out of 10, I would say, okay, well, we're not gonna drop the charges, but I don't have to call you to testify. And if you do testify, you can get up there and say whatever you need to say to stay safe. I am not gonna prosecute you for perjury or violating a false police report. And that works so much better for my cases because when I, when I put a, a victim on the stand and she testified consistently with her police report, namely that yes, he hit me, juries didn't believe women and so they would quit. Whereas when I put a victim on the stand and she said, oh, nothing happened, I fell down the stairs, he never touched me, the jury would convict because juries think women lie. They just think women lie. So it was better for me to have a recanting victim on the stand than a cooperative victim. And it was better for me to have a, a victim refuse to testify than to ever have a victim testify consistently with my theory of the case. So I, I never uh, enforced subpoenas. Yeah. I never, certainly never dream of holding a, a, a victim in jail or anything like that. And it worked out better as a prosecution strategy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they're good prosecutors, right? And so one of the things I talk about in the book a lot is kind of what a, a good system would look like. Because I'm not advocating getting rid of the criminal justice system. I want it to be there as an option for women who want to use it. But being a good prosecutor, I think, should mean talking to the victim about whether she's willing to testify, having a conversation about what that will mean, having a conversation about what the realistic results of that prosecution might be, and then making a decision from there. Now, I can tell you that in Baltimore, not six months ago, a complaining witness was jailed on a body attachment. This is being taped, I'm not gonna say by who. Um, by a judge who's very prominent um, for her re refusal to show up in court. And that's not unusual. Um, so I, for me, I don't like no-drop prosecution because I think it can lead to those abuses. It doesn't always lead to those abuses, of course not. Um, and there are great prosecutors out there who are thoughtful and sensitive and have those conversations. There are lots who don't um, and who are concerned about their conviction rates and believe that they can only make the case with that witness. But the stuff about the credibility of women, you know, one of the really interesting findings um, in the social science research is exactly that, that juries don't believe women. Um, and juries believe women of color less than they believe white women. So like all women lie and then women of color lie more according to juries. Um, and so that's really problematic when you think about kind of who's coming through the criminal justice system and the kinds of cases you're trying to make. So yeah, I would imagine a recanting victim would do you a lot of good <laughs> given that. Um, so, but uh, yeah, they're great prosecutors. And so you know, prosecutors generally hate me, but I do think they're great prosecutors. Um, yeah, I'm actually um, working right now as a domestic violence counselor, and I just um, a lot of the things that you were saying really related to to what I experienced working with women. First, when you mentioned um, the defensive wounds, what I see all all of the time is that women end up having no wounds when the police show up because the men are well equipped enough to know that if there's wounds, the police are going to arrest, so they choke or a strangle, um, and that doesn't show any wounds, and then women have scratches all over their partners from, from trying to defend and themselves. So somebody's choking you, what you do is that you grab out of them to try mm -hmm. and Yeah, so we see that all of the time, that women are in prison and um, dealing with the criminal justice system from what is clearly to us defensive actions. Um, also, I find I feel like a financial planner because one of the, what seems to me a lot of people ask me, well, don't you get frustrated? Don't women always want to leave and they're, they're still in love? And I find that what I end up working with most is just planning how do you get out, how do we get out? Um, because women just don't have the financial resources to be able to leave. They feel like their choice is between staying and having, um, and having the abuse, but their kids are at least getting food, they're not living in a homeless shelter, versus the very realistic option of living in a homeless shelter. I, we're in um, the Delaware County Agency, we only have six rooms. There's, we get calls all day long for people looking for shelter. And, and do you have shelter. prohibitions on older boys? Um, well, we can only take children that are under 18, regardless of shelter. There are lots of shelters that won't take uh, boys over age 13. So shelter is not a possibility for you at all if you, want to, you have a teenage boy. Um, the thought being that you know, bringing men into that environment is problematic, but I mean, a 13-year-old kid whose family is displaced because of domestic violence is hardly like a big, scary man.
those are the policies that exist in some shelters. Yeah, and I know that the agency in Philadelphia has 100 beds, and we get calls from them asking if we have rooms. We only have six rooms. So it's very frustrating because I find the most heartbreaking is answering the hotline calls all day and hearing, you know. There's still, yeah, there's still more shelter space for animals than there are, is for uh, women subjected to abuse in the United States. So, which is not, I mean, I'm not saying we should take away from the animals. Um, but it, it, it is a matter of perspective. Um, other questions? I know it's a beautiful day. I wouldn't have any questions either. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate having had the opportunity to talk to you. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.